And now for introductions. I'm quite excited to have a group of four speakers with us today who all represent the PMG Palliative Care Champion Group. Each of these speakers has trained at the University of Washington in the Graduate Palliative Care Certificate Program, and they're here today to share some of what they have learned and what they're working on. So briefly, uh, we're joined by Dr. Susie Bobbinreath. She's a family medicine physician who graduated from University of Maryland School of Medicine and trained at the Family Medicine Residency at Southwest Washington Medical Center in Vancouver. She was in private practice for 10 years before joining what she describes as the brilliant, compassionate, and socially-minded clinicians at PMG Gateway. Dr. Bobbinreath is grateful to have found the UW Graduate Program in Palliative Care as the people she has met and the skills she has learned there have reminded her of why she went into medicine in the first place. We're also joined by Dr. Sunita Deshmukh, who graduated from medical school in Pune, India, and completed her first internal medicine residency at BJ Medical College. After coming to the US, she completed a second IM residency as well as geriatric fellowship in Staten Island, New York, before coming to PMG Gresham, where she's practiced geriatrics and internal medicine for 20 years. Dr. Deshmukh strives to provide holistic, whole person care for our patients and is a wise and thoughtful member of our primary palliative care community and practice. We're also joined by Dr. David Hayes, who earned his medical degree at Emory University and then completed his training in family medicine at OHSU. Dr. Hayes uh, has had 24 years in practice and emphasizes building strong and lasting relationships with his patients based on trust and mutual respect. Quote, it's a privilege to be a witness and trusted partner in some of the happiest and most challenging parts of people's lives. Dr. Hayes finds that primary palliative care communication skills have been extremely valuable with patients and families and even with his teams. For our team, uh, with palliative care, his tech savvy and his ability to capture the stories of his patients is a great gift. And finally, we're joined by Dr. Marianne Parshley. She spent her 34 years in internal medicine practice primarily with geriatric patients and those with chronic complex illness. Many moons ago, she graduated from Dartmouth Medical School and the internal medicine residency at Providence Portland Medical Center. She came late to formal palliative care and feels very lucky to have joined the palliative care community of practice through the UW certificate program and for the Vital Talk faculty training in communication. Becoming a PMG palliative care champion has been practice transforming and life affirming work that she is eager to share with others. And without further ado, we are delighted to have all four of you here to share what you have learned um, and for the rest of us to grow. Uh, thank you so much. Good morning. We truly are excited to be here to share something that we all love and came to in the last four years, and that's primary palliative care. I want to give a shout out to our professors and mentors at the UW Graduate Certificate Program, powered by Vital Talk, a national communication system and training program that developed in Seattle in the oncology department and founded by the Cambia Health Foundation. Next slide. 
couple of um, couple of housekeeping things. Please put the Q the questions in the Q and A box, and we will come to them at the end. And continue your chat on the top of the that's on the top of the screen, and and have your conversation there. And if you feel comfortable, put your name and role in the chat just so we know who was here. That's really helpful when we design our presentations. And if any of you have a reason that you can't hear this for any reason, go ahead and turn on the live captions next. All of this material was created by the Connections Education Team and the PMG Palliative Care Champions, and you are welcome to use this, but please contact us first so you can have the most up-to-date content. Next. We have absolutely no conflicts of interest to disclose commercial or otherwise, and we strive to make sure that all the clinical content is evidence-based and as unbiased as we could make it. Next step. Our goals today are to identify opportunities for longitudinal advanced care planning and goals of care conversations with our patients, to highlight ways we can align clinical teams around this across the care locations, to show that it is possible to navigate difficult conversations, and to identify some of the best practices that we've found in communicating across the care team in Providence. Next slide. So I'm going to start with a very simple question. What is palliative care? Our patients often think it's end of life care or hospice, but actually it's a specialty that addresses the symptoms and stress of, of serious illness at any age and any stage, whether or not curative treatment is being used. There are even pediatric palliative care specialists. Next slide. And what's the difference between specialty versus primary palliative care? We all know our connections team, that's specialty palliative care. They have expertise in complex communication, complex symptom management, and managing the complex needs of patients and serious illness. Primary palliative care is what primary, clinic, primary care clinic teams practice with a palliative care philosophy to provide holistic care using specific communication tools doing symptom management all across the life trajectory of the patient. Kind of sounds like primary care, right? Well, it is with a different set of lenses and a different toolkit. In our value-based world, we got to talk about high value care, which roughly translates to quality divided by cost. So is there data to show that there's increased quality with palliative care? And indeed there is. There's an increase in goal concordant care, meaning that patients are three times more likely to have their wishes followed and also an improved quality of life, decreased suffering and increased patient well-being. Next. There are fewer hospitalizations and ER visits for those who have palliative care involved and real important, there's less non-beneficial care in the last six to 12 months. There's better coping by the patients and families, which leads to increased satisfaction, not just by them, but also by the team. And there's more in earlier hospice care referrals. We all know that hospice care does better if they get an early referral rather than the last day or two of life. And one metric that we don't measure well or didn't until the last couple of years, and that's clinician well-being. And it turns out if you provide the palliative care services above to our patients and families, clini the clinical team has better well-being as well because A, they have less associated trauma, B, there's less moral distress when there's non-beneficial care, and C, because there's less chaos if the patients and families are coping better. 
Next slide. Okay, is there cost savings? Well, it turns out there is. There was a long-term care study done in New England that showed just the presence of a healthcare power of attorney or a pulse on the chart was associated with a decrease in cost by 9,500 per person for the rest of their lives. And at Harvard, they integrated a primary palliative care program in some of their primary care clinics. And in comparison to the other clinics, they showed if it was earlier in the serious illness that the last six months of life saved 2,500 per month per patient. And if it's later in the last three months of life, it was 4,100 per month per patient. These sound like small numbers to me, but if you multiply that by the almost 90,000 seriously ill patients in PMG, this is a whopping savings or potential savings, and that's what we would like to see come. Next slide. So why primary care? Well, our palliative care colleagues tell us when they talk to patients in the hospital and ask for the clinicians or clinical team of trust, they most often mention their primary care clinician. In a study that was published last year by Dr. Tony Bach, patients were willing to place their trust in a clinician with whom they had developed a good relationship. And given that primary care specialties are devoted to patient-centered longitudinal relation-based care, it seems like an obvious connection. Next slide. And why now? Well, first of all, we've got an aging population. We have an increase in complex serious illness. We have a fractured healthcare system as the pandemic highlighted clearly. And all this was re resulted in increase in family and caregiver burdens. We're also trying to integrate care upstream to decrease hospitalizations and ER visits, especially during the pandemic. And in this environment, we have limited palliative care and geriatric specialists. So all of this increases the demand for primary care access and for palliative care services. And if we can merge those two, we believe it doesn't increase the, the burden on the primary care doctors, but it, in, it eases their burden and improves the care for our patients. Next slide. <clears throat> when Dr. Linda DeSitter and the Connections team looked at how many staff they would need to deal with the primary or the palliative care needs of our seriously ill PMG population, they found they would need 27 times the current palliative care staff. Next slide. So in 2017-2018, Dr. DeSitter and the PMG leadership came up with a primary palliative care training model where four regional champions were sent to the UW program and for vital talk training to become teachers and mentors for clinic champions. Clinic champions were also sent to the UW program um, and got the advanced palliative care training. We have a cohort of about 20 now, and the goal is to train every single PMG Oregon clinic in foundational and intermediate um, palliative care skills. This is aspirational, but it's also in process. We have one fully trained clinic and three that are training and two that are on deck already. And we hope that this will transfer the way, transform the way we care for our seriously ill patients. Next slide. I'm gonna just bring us briefly back to the individual, the patient, put them back in the center. Every one of the 89,986 seriously ill patients in PMG, these are your patients, are human beings, next slide, with families. 
And we want you to stop for a moment and think of a really difficult case where you thought it should have gone differently or you wished it had gone differently, but didn't have the tools, didn't feel like it was your role or didn't have the experts to call on. And keep that in mind while we go through this presentation. And now I'm gonna turn this over to Dr. David Hayes. All right. Thank you, Dr. Parsley. Um, so I'm David Hayes, uh, and today I'm going to be talking about uh, primary palliative care in the early stages of serious illness. And one of the things I invite you to look for throughout all of our talks here are what are the opportunities for connection? Um, uh, and I mean several things by that. What are our opportunities for connecting the patient with the team? And when I say team, I mean um, uh, looking at the team in the broadest sense of that word, uh, clinicians, MAs, front desk staff, social work, um, mental health. Um, how do we, um, how do we, can we make as a system, make better connections uh, with our patients? Um, also looking at uh, ways that we can connect uh, the patient uh, with their family and make sure that patients are having some of these difficult conversations uh, with their family as well, letting them know what they want. Uh, if they were seriously ill. And then also, uh, how can we connect as team members? How can we improve collaboration uh, amongst team members taking care of these patients? So to do that today, we're going to be talking about a case, uh, Barbara F. Um, she is a 72-year-old woman. She's an established patient in your clinic. Um, she's got a history of poorly controlled diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, past tobacco abuse. Um, she's a new uh, diagnosis of uh, congestive heart failure in the last year with an EF of 40%. She's seen cardiology, she's been stabilized on diuretics and an ACE, and she's coming into your clinic for a routine follow-up. So if we're going to help Barbara make uh, any kind of medical decisions, uh, whether that be whether or not she's going to have another cardiac uh, intervention, uh, whether or not to start a, um, a statin medication, or whether or not to undergo um, a certain type of cancer screening. Ideally, we want to be using a shared decision-making model with her and come up with a collaborative plan that is in line with her goals. To do that, we use this house model. Um, we want to make sure we're establishing a, a, and have a good foundational relationship, as Dr. Parshley alluded to. We want to make sure we have a good sense of what the medical story is on the on the right hand column. Uh, but we also want to make sure we have a strong foundation in what the patient's story and the family story is. And using all of this together will help us uh, make a plan uh, that is in line with uh, with her goals. Um, so uh, we do, like I said, we do need to know the medical story and we're all pretty good at collecting the medical story. We get trained to do this well in medical school and residency and in our training. And we learn how to collect allergy lists and medication lists and problem lists. Um, and our EMRs are very good at, at collecting this information as well. Um, and sometimes we can look kind of chaotic like this and it's hard to get a picture of, of who this person really is. Ideally, we wanna also be collecting that personal story so we have more of a picture like on the right. Um, how can we create systems that help paint a more full and robust picture uh, of the patient uh, like this? Uh, get a sense for what their context uh, is, get a sense for who their uh, supports are and what's important to them. 
So how do we paint this picture? Well, um, first we have to listen carefully uh, for pieces of the, that personal story. And as we know, uh, patients share many things with our, our clinical teams from, I have a headache to, I have to show you this picture of my cat to, can I tell you a joke? Um, so how do we listen to all this, but start to pick out the important pieces of the personal story? Well, you're in luck. Um, I have developed a, a sophisticated new technology um, that I'm gonna be sharing with, with all of PMG. Um, it looks like this. Um, it's a little bulky. We're still working on a few of the design elements, um, but soon we're going to be delivering this to all primary, uh, sorry, all PMG clinicians. Uh, when you get a pair, uh, put them on, um, put on your palliative care headphones and ask yourself the question, uh, could the information that they're telling me right now be helpful if they are not able to communicate for themselves uh, in the future? And if you use them and start listening, uh, certain words will start popping out that are uh, part of the personal story, like wife, gaming, uh, promotion at work. Uh, these things start to create a little bit more of a narrative uh, of who this person is. And you'll also hear um, uh, phrases start to pop out um, that are really the patient pointing the way towards what matters to them and what might be important for them uh, if they're in a crisis. So we wanna be collecting all of this uh, important information um, and make sure we, we put it in the EMR so it's available to anybody. So what are our opportunities for connection with Barbara? Again, like I said, we have an opportunity to connect Barbara with the team uh, at large. Um, uh, patients want to feel known. Um, uh, and if they feel known, they're gonna trust our care better. Uh, they're going to trust our advice um, and they're going to engage in collaboration uh, with our teams. So uh, do we have, can we get a, make sure that the patient photo is in the chart? Um, those photos really help our team recognize the patient and helps us all remember details about both their medical story and the personal story. Do we have their preferred name in the chart so that everybody uh, calls them the name they want to be called? Um, and can we pronounce their name correctly? Do we use their connect, correct pronouns? All of these make uh, a patient feel more comfortable. Uh, when we hear those little details about the, the personal story, do we capture them uh, in Epic so that they're available to everyone? Um, under the history tab, uh, there's a social documentation section that many of us collect that personal narrative. Um, uh, I would encourage, there's an epic smart phrase called dot sock doc. I would encourage everybody to put that into your office visit notes or your inpatient notes. Um, use that as that personal story and add to this section if you, if you find out more information uh, about a patient. We also have the opportunity to uh, talk with patients about um, who their trusted decision maker is find out what matters to them, and make sure we're collecting that valuable information in a goals of care note uh, in EPIC. And I'm gonna show you that, that stuff a little bit later. Um, I use the term trusted decision maker. There are many terms, unfortunately, for the same thing. Um, healthcare agent, healthcare representative, trusted decision maker, surrogate decision maker. Um, all of these terms mean the same thing. Who is the person that, uh, that this patient would identify uh, as the person that they want to help um, make decisions if they're not able to make decisions themselves? Um, 
And then what matters uh, to the patient? There's several ways that we can elicit this, several prompts. Um, uh, thinking about your life currently, what matters most to you? Um, what makes a good day for you? And a question that I like to ask uh, is, um, uh, if they have experiences with um, a loved one that had a serious illness, and how that influenced uh, what they would want for themselves if they were in that situation. That kind of points to things that they may be worried about themselves. So we wanna capture all of this valuable information in goals of care notes so that they're available to the whole team. Luckily, there's a smart phrase, .goc, that helps us do that. You can use this uh, in any of your, in your visit notes. Um, this is what it looks like, and there's a beginning marker and an ending marker. You want to leave those alone. Uh, don't do anything to those, because if you if you leave them alone, everything in the middle will be captured in a new goals of care note and will be visible in the green tile in the advanced care planning summary, which I'll show you a, a little bit later. Um, our team has also developed an advanced care planning template that um, is going to go live uh, probably late uh, May, beginning of June. Uh, as part of that .goc, it'll be one of the options. And it's a template to help guide clinicians through a brief goals of care conversation. Um, it has several prompts here. Um, it helps you think about having a conversation about the healthcare agent or trusted decision maker. Several prompts to uh, elicit the patient's hopes, um, their worries, and then the values trade-offs. Um, what we mean by that is um, a question try to try to help figure out uh, where the patient is on the spectrum um, of longevity versus comfort uh, if they're thinking about serious illness um, in the future for themselves. Are they more towards the side of longevity and intervention or more towards the side of comfort? or something in between. These are easy to incorporate into annual wellness visits, um, and they do naturally lead into discussions about completion of advanced directives. This is what uh, one of those notes uh, looks like um, uh, in the, the green tab in the goals of care. Like I said, we have an opportunity to help a patient complete an advanced uh, directive. Um, this is a screenshot from the Oregon Health Authority website. Um, there is a new updated advanced Oregon advanced directive form. It actually is really good. It has a lot of good uh, values questions embedded uh, in it. Um, it's available in multiple languages and there's a nice user guide for them too. So I would encourage people to um, start using this new updated advanced directive form. Uh, we can also help a patient complete a preliminary advanced directive in the office. Um, this uh, with the trusted decision maker workflow uh, in Epic. This is really easy to do. Several simple questions uh, to go through with the patient and you end up printing out a preliminary advanced directive. If you have a, a notary in your clinic, which some of us do, you can get it notarized right there and you're done. Um, if not, it does print out a pretty easy um, little packet for the patient that they can take home and, and it instructs them how to either get it notarized or witnessed. Lastly, this is the advanced care summary plan uh, page uh, that I was talking about. I don't know if you guys have been here, but um, if you click the post or advanced directive section in the storyboard, it'll take you here. Um, and there's several sections. The yellow or orange section shows any post forms that are on file. 
The blue section is for any advanced directives. And then the green section is for the goals of care notes uh, that I've, I've been mentioning. So we've had more of a discussion with Barbara, and this is what we found out. She's a home health aide. She has a big extended family in the area. Uh, she has two daughters and one son, two grandchildren that she helps care for. Her husband died of congestive heart failure, and he was in and out of the hospital multiple times over the last three years of his life. Um, he eventually died on home hospice, um, and that ended up being a good experience for, for the patient and the, the family, very supportive. Um, she doesn't take care of herself because she's always taking care of others. Her oldest daughter, Sarah, would be her primary trusted decision maker. Her son, Thomas, would be the backup, but she really doesn't want her youngest daughter involved because they're currently estranged. She's not completed advanced directives, but she does take a copy uh, home and agrees to complete it uh, and return. Uh, so with that, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Bob and Reith, uh, to talk about um, palliative care and the, the kind of middle stages of uh, serious illness. Okay, great. Thank you, Dr. Hayes. So um, yeah, I'm just going to talk about as illness progresses, what happens and what we can do, what kind of opportunities we have in primary palliative care. And this is usually when the patient ends up in the emergency room or um, in the hospital. Okay, so back to Barbara. Um, unfortunately for Barbara, her story progresses in a difficult way. Um, she has a cardiac arrest at her Bible study. But fortunately, she um, is successfully resuscitated very quickly. And on arrival to the emergency department, she's alert. Um, she's in a lot of pain from issues related to resuscitation, but she's feeling really grateful to be there. Um, the emergency room doctor and the cardiologist have both recommended that she have a cardiac cath and get placement of um, AICD. So her personal story, her three kids are all in the emergency department. Um, she really has been sort of reluctant to involve them directly in her health care to this point. She hasn't brought them to office visits um, and she hasn't yet gotten her, health, her advanced directive completed, but fortunately her primary care physician has documented the information um, about her background story with her kids and why she doesn't want to include her youngest daughter under the green tile in the advanced care planning section of EPIC and then has also put the uh, trusted decision makers names and phone numbers under the blue tile in EPIC. So um, emergency department and palliative care, what does that have to do with anything together? Um, why do we order palliative care in the emergency department? Well, we know um, from a lot of studies in the palliative care literature that on average, it takes about four and a half days following admission for patients to have a palliative care consult. Um, Providence, actually, the um, Oregon Regional Palliative Care Connections team obtained an innovation grant, and back in 2018-2019, they were able to study whether the presence of an embedded palliative care social worker in the emergency department at PPMC could help foster initiation of palliative care services straight from the emergency department and whether that would reduce the length of stay and cost for the system. And so you can see here that um, when palliative care is ordered in the emergency department, um, it decreases the length of stay uh, by about three days, which is great. So that was definitely a clear difference between the ER orders where they were generated and orders that were generated during the hospitalization. And the great news for the ER docs was that none of this slowed um, the throughput in the ER. 
Um, given what we know about palliative care otherwise, what David and Marianne have talked about, we also know that this is going to be good, better care. It's going to be care that's more concordant with what the patient's goals are, and the patients and their families are going to be happier, and the clinicians are going to be happier as well. So that's great. Um, next slide. So why order palliative care in the emergency department? More issues. You know, we see all these things that we talked about in preceding my preceding slides and another folks' stuff. Um, but the big thing with the Providence study that they noticed was that it really hugely reduced the amount of um, savings that we had. And, and we know that in the bottom, at the end of the day, bottom line, we like to see cost savings in all of these kinds of measures. That's how we get things moving. So um, there's a graph here that will show us um, where the source of the savings was. And it was about 15% of the savings came from just the per day cost savings related to palliative care. So that might mean, you know, fewer procedures that the patient might not have otherwise chosen to do if they hadn't had a palliative care consult. The big bulk of the savings, 85%, is due to overall lower length of stay. And that makes a lot of sense. The thing to show you is that in the Providence study in the year or eight months that we did this study, there was a 600 to $800,000 savings and the return on investment was six to one, which is fantastic. Okay, so what are the prompts for the ED order? Um, initially, you know, things that could, in, that could make a ER doctor reach out to the social worker in the ER are things like a patient who's over 80 years old. The surprise question, would you be surprised if this patient died in the next six months to a year? If the answer is no, you should get a palliative care consult in the ED. And then certain diagnoses are gonna trigger this as well. Um, and these include things like metastatic cancer and stage organ failure, advanced dementia, stuff like that. Um, there's also some room for physician discretion, of course, and those types of things would include people with functional decline, people who are bouncing back into the hospital or to the emergency room, and then those folks that just have uncontrolled symptoms, whether they be physical symptoms or sometimes mental health symptoms too. Because um, palliative care is really all about managing symptoms and helping people live their best life. Next. So how does this work? Um, the ER doc is going to determine that need for a palliative care consult, and they may directly then reach out to the social worker. The other way it can happen, and this is what we want you guys out there to know, is that also the, pre the primary care doc can feel free to contact either the emergency department doctor or the social worker to ask for that the palliative care order. And if you do that, you can just reach out by um, chat or by phone and place a call. Um, and you'll then the order goes to the social, uh, order goes in from the ER doc, they place the order. ER team at that point is totally done, okay? So they have no more work to do. Um, then the social worker is gonna pick up the ball and do a quick assessment. And it really is a pretty quick assessment, just determining what the patient's palliative care needs might be, once they're admitted, or if they're not admitted, once they go home. So if the patient's admitted, then the ER um, social worker there is going to help assist in you know, introducing the topic to the patient and their family, and then working with the um, palliative care inpatient team to get things rolling to help support the hospitalist through that stay. Um, and then if the patient goes home, the social worker might reach out to the family physician or the internal medicine doc, whoever it is, um, to give them ideas about things that they talked about in the hospital, little places where they were able to kind of plant a seed, if you will. Next. So these are our two social workers um, that we have. We have somebody at St. Vincent's, Alex Granite, 
And then over at Providence Portland, replacing Kathy Skinner, who was there for a long time, is Ellie Dumani. And they are um, fantastic and really excited with this work and really excited to help our patients. So you can feel free to call them um, at the numbers or just chat them in, uh, in Epic too. All right. So um, another quote from Tony Bach, who is um, a vital talk guru and palliative care doctor. Um, serious illness is a journey and we just always are thinking about this. It's really hard for people to talk about what's important to them if they have no idea where they're headed. Um, so it's important for us to help them get as much information as they can about their illness in a way that they can hear so they can make these decisions that we want them to make. Next. So opportunities for connection when the health status changes. A lot of times that stuff is happening in the ER or in the hospital. Um, and it, it should be opportunities where there's some symbiotic action going on here. It's not all the primary care doc responsible for this. It's not all the hospitalist or all the palliative care inpatient team that does this. Um, it should be symbiotic. You can plant seeds for advanced care planning. A lot of times when patients arrive in the ED or the hospital, they're scared. They've had a change in status. They don't know what to expect. They might be there with their family members who don't come to the office with them. So this is a perfect time to plant that seed about let's get this advanced directive done or let's talk about goals. Next. Um, reframing their goals of care, having input from all of their different specialists. This is a great time to do that too. Um, and then planning for the future, mostly around worsening of their illness. What do we expect? Kind of like that last slide referenced. And then also just increasing frailty in general. Is their um, home situation adequate or do they need to think about a new living situation? And then finally, just again, emphasizing that collaboration, that symbiosis between the different care teams across the setting. This is something all of us can do a little bit each time we see the patient and it really doesn't add to our workload significantly at all. Okay, so back to Barbara. She's admitted, obviously, and uh, gets discharged home with home health and discharged cardiac rehab. Her ejection fraction's down to 30%. She's had her medications optimized. She got a stent in the hospital. She also got that AICD. Um, her goals of care have been re reviewed with her and her family. Her advanced directive is now completed and signed. Um, she's still a full code and she wants all interventions, really. She feels like she's a strong woman. She's come back from death once already. And she really has a very strong faith and says that she feels like God has given her the second chance. Go ahead. David, yeah. Um, so God's intervened for her and she has this new lease on life and a new sense of her purpose. She's hoping to get back to helping care for her grandchildren one day a week. And so her priority is her longevity um, and she really just wants to maintain that full code status. She does say, however, that while she values time with her family as her primary thing, she would accept a degree of, in, of in, that, sorry, she would accept a degree of dependence um, if that would still allow her to <clears throat> interact with her family, but she does not want to be in a vegetative state persistently. Um, and she doesn't want her kids to feel guilty about removing her from um, supportive care if that, when that time comes. Okay, so now I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Sunita Dushmuk from PMG Gateway Internal Medicine, and she's going to talk about late stages of serious illness and primary palliative care. Thank you, Dr. Bhavatreet. Um, I'm Dr. Deshmukh, and I will be talking about primary palliative care in late stages of serious illness. 
mostly I will be focusing on having goals of care conversations using Remark guide. Next, coming back to Barbara's story, it has been six months since her AICD was placed. Her medical story, her congestive heart failure has worsened and she had three hospitalizations for congestive heart failure. Her AICD has fired on two occasions. That was very uncomfortable for her. She moved into a long-term care facility after that last hospital stay. Next, as per cardiology, she's not a candidate for advanced heart failure treatments like LVAD or heart transplant. They could be more aggressive with diuretics, permitting her kidney function allows that. However, she runs the risk of ending up on dialysis. What's the patient story here? She has goals and her concerns. Her concerns are like, are there other treatments that could improve her heart failure? And she's worried that her AICD will fire again, which was very traumatic and painful for her when it happened in the past. Next. So we come to this stage. Millions of people will face such serious life-threatening illness. It's a true wake-up call for most of them. Am I going to die from this? And many will reflect on their life. As we can see from this slide, there are more worries, questions, and very difficult choices to make. Next. How do we approach this issue? Although most of us agree on importance of conducting goals of care conversations with patients, these can be very challenging for various reasons. Such conversations typically will happen in office, outside field of palliative care. We may be very well equipped for the biomedical aspects of care, but not for addressing the emotional, the spiritual and psychosocial dimensions of illness and health. And the most importantly, we don't have enough time in each visit or encounter with these patients. However, it is possible to have these conversations by focusing on structured simplicity of collecting the information and using talking map to address these goals. Next. What is the purpose of goals of care conversations? It focuses on whole person care. We gently need to talk about illness understanding prognosis and what care decisions we will be making. It addresses the critical abilities that matter to their quality of life, recognizing their fears, worries and exploring their sources of strength and most importantly emphasizing care on patients goals and values as not all patients can be cured next what is hard about goals of care conversations as we can see in serious illness it is not only physical and mental health that is in crisis there is significant amount of emotional crisis for patients and families, existential, spiritual, and relationship issues even become more salient as the illness progresses, causing a lot of fear, anxiety, and sadness. For physicians, it's equally challenging. In spite of having warm and comfortable relationship with our patients over years, these conversations invariably will provoke feelings of anxiety and inadequacy. Evidence suggests that this stress does not really lessen with our years of experience in practice. 
It can become a cumulative emotional burden on physicians when exposed to cumulative suffering and loss resulting in burnout. Next. What information do we need to have effective conversations with these patients? Given the complexities, we need to have adequate preparation and information pertaining to all domains of life affected by the illness. For sake of simplicity, we can use the mnemonic pain. P stands for physical symptoms and prognosis. Anger, anxiety, depression that gives us information about their psychosocial domain. Interpersonal dynamics. This can be there can be family dynamics, family issues, but also most importantly, we need to have information from the interdisciplinary clinical care team, especially specialist perspective, care managers, social workers. And many patients and families will not understand the poor prognosis and approaching death, and that can be very difficult to address. Next, the other most important piece with related to illness that we need to know it. What is the disease trajectory? Having information about the prognosis really helps us to reframe the illness and how it is going to affect their life. Patient's perspective and understanding is also very important because many patients do not realize the illness is going to be life threatening. And exploring the previous advanced care planning, this gives us the most valued information about patient as a human being with values, emotions and goals in their life. Next. This slide illustrates the knowledge gap and highlights the importance of assessing the patient's understanding about illness. In one survey, 81% of the patients with stage 4 colorectal cancer and 69% of the patients with stage 4 lung cancer did not understand that chemotherapy was not at all likely to cure them. Next. How do we? What tool do we use to carry these conversations? These conversations require a very systematic and thoughtful approach to ensure quality and value. And what's the purpose of using the tool? We have to be able to talk about difficult subjects like approaching death. We have to be able to place ourselves in these emotionally complex situations by watching and listening carefully. Learn who these people are, what are they going through, and what do they need from us, and ultimately figuring out the path to support them through this journey. And the tool we use most in towards in these late stages is the remap tool. Next. The first step in remap tool is reframe. Reframing means we need to be sure everyone understand the new information about the illness and that we are in a different place now. What's the purpose of reframing? It highlights the change of status and it places the details of the patient's illness into a bigger picture of life. There are two most important steps to gather information before we reframe the illness. The first step is obviously assessing the patient's and family's understanding. What have you heard from your healthcare team about your illness? What changes have you experienced throughout your illness? This not only gives us the patient's perspective, but also gives us the information about emotional state and family dynamics. In Barbara's case, 
she knew she didn't have any other treatment options open at this point. She did not like being in a nursing home and she wanted to spend time with her grandchildren at home. After we assess the patient's understanding, always ask permission to share the medical information, especially prognosis and how it is going to affect their life. Next, how do we share this information? Especially this medical information, prognosis with the honest, simple and clear language that they can understand. We do this by using headline. Headline should have the medical information with meaning to the patient. If we go back again to Barbara's case, apart from medication titration, there were no other medical treatment choices left and truly she is approaching end of life. And how can we share this information using headline? We can this, the headline can be because of your age and severe, severely decreased heart function. We do not have many options remaining to treat this and I'm worried that your time may be short. Next. It is very natural to have emotional distress after hearing the headline. When you see an emotional response from the patient, that means they heard the headline. And before we provide additional medical information, treatment plan, or even offer immediate reassurance, we should accept the patient's emotional response. There is a saying that the journey of 1000 miles starts with a single step. And I would say that in serious illness, this is the most important step in this journey where it allows us to connect to the patients as a human being. But also for us physicians, it gives us the ability to be aware of our own emotions and be with them in the moment of compassion when we know that we cannot fix their illness. Next. Emotions can be verbal and nonverbal and they can be masked. Next, how to respond to emotions? We use the nurse's statement to articulate empathy or responding to the emotions. N, name the emotion. In general, naming the emotion, it turns down the intensity a notch when we are talking about the emotional situation. Understanding statement, I can only imagine how hard this is. It normalizes the emotion but avoid suggesting that we understand their experience because truly we don't understand their experience. Respecting statement, I can see you really care about your mother. Supporting, we are here to support you through this process. It's a good way to express non-abandonment because many of them will feel abandoned when there are no treatment choices left. Exploring statements, can you tell me more about what you're thinking? This can be very helpful when sometimes we don't understand what someone is talking about and before jumping to assumption, we can just explore more. And silence, intentional presence, that can also make more space for a person to share more of their worries and concern. And it also gives us the opportunity to connect. This slide highlights the importance of spending time on addressing the emotions, even if we spend 40 seconds on addressing the emotions with one empathic response. The visit can be two to three minutes shorter. Next, 
Mapping values. Before we move towards formulating a plan, we have to intentionally step back and take a look at the bigger picture to explore the values. Why to map values? Because it allows us to develop a patient-centered care plan. In order to figure out the best plan for you, can we talk for a couple of minutes about what's important to you at this point? If we look at Barbara's case again, she's not a candidate for LVAD or transplant. If we deliver this information with a statement, there is nothing more we can do for you. It leaves the patient feeling helpless and abandoned. Instead, in absence of curative treatment, the focus should be on defining and supporting the patient's redefined hopes. It gives us the opportunity to explore the values and how do we explore different values. Next, we have to explore the hopes and concerns. In given these situations, what's most important to you? Fears and worries. What are your biggest fears and worries about the future? sources of strength. What gives you strength as you think about the future of your illness and trade offs? If you become sicker, how much are you willing to go through for the possibility of gaining more time? So this gives the whole picture about the person with the values and the goals. In the next step is aligning. The treatment or the options that we can offer with the patient's values in aligning physician verbally reflects back what has been heard from the patient. It affirms their values and it aligns the treatment with values. Knowing Barbara's hopes and concerns, we can summarize what we heard. Next, from what I hear you saying, you are tired of all these treatments coming back and forth to the hospital. The main priority now is to be at home, spending time with your family and feeling comfortable. Next. When everybody is aligned truly with patients' values, including family members, physicians, care teams, this is what we can expect, and it truly is healing for everybody, including the physicians and the care team. Next. After aligning with patients' values, we can propose a recommendation or a care plan. Always ask permission before, always ask permission before giving a recommendation plan and propose a recommendation that reflects patients' values. Next. Coming back to Barbara's story, she she did her goals were to be at home, be comfortable, and we can summarize and aligned with her by statements like this. We will do everything we can to help you be at home and enjoy your time with family. When your heart stops and you are near the end of life, we won't use machines to try to keep you going. Instead, we will let you pass naturally and use medications to make you comfortable. Always recognize the emotional cues after this and be supportive of those emotional cues. We can close the conversations by open ended question. Next. What thoughts do you have? And we are here to help you. That just reassures that our support is there for the patients. Next. 
coming back to Barbara's story to. Her medical story was her congestive heart failure was worsening. She was not a candidate for heart transplant or other invasive options. Her hopes were to get back to home again and be with her grandchildren. Her fears were she does not want AICD to fire again and she does not want to be a vegetable and did not want her children to feel guilty pulling the plug. So we propose a plan about comfort care measures with the choice to stop the AICD and enroll in hospice. And finally, Barbara agreed to enroll in hospice and pursue the comfort care plan. Thank you. With that, I'll hand it over to Dr. Parshley for wrap up. I'm going to go through. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Deshmukh. Um, I'm going to go through some really quick slides. Um, this is the primary care training program, palliative care training program. We want to train every clinic. Next slide. And here's where all of the palliative care champions are in the middle column. I want to point out the many geriatric fellows who are trained in intermediate palliative care skills and the clinics also who are in training. Next slide. Takeaways. One, if you connect early and serious illness around um, goals of care, you can improve goal concordant care, decrease suffering and cost. Next. We, if we can align the entire clinical team with the patient, it decreases stress and increases well-being of all parties. Next. Difficult conversations with patients and families really can be enriching and navigated with tools and training. Number four, and we hope we've showed you how to use the serious illness con communication skills in EPIC tools, sorry, in EPIC to align the clinical teams. Next. I want to just give you a couple of resources if you want to dive deeper. There is on HealthStream a, uh, a goals of care communication uh, tool. That's a one hour CME that you can find. Um, it's under COVID-19 goals of care. There's also a four hour free workshop about every two months, usually on a Wednesday, that allows you to dive into that remap tool that Dr. Dishmuk was talking about and get some practice with it. Everybody who's done it has told us that it's really valuable and they've been able to use it the, day ne the next day in practice. And there's always a waiting list, but don't let that discourage you because healthcare being what it is, we always have cancellations at the last minute. Just use the QR code in the corner and, and you can get there. Next. <laughs> If you want to do a deeper dive, I want to talk to you about the palliative care training program. This is a quote from one of our colleagues who was feeling tremendously burned out at the end of 30 years. And at the end of the program, she says, I feel important to my patients again. That's saying something. Next slide. So if you want to have a practice and life transforming experience, educational experience, and you want to join a community of practice of palliative care clinicians, an interprofessional team across the Northwest, we highly recommend the University of Washington Pal Care Graduate Certificate Program. There's now a site in Portland and there's a site in Boise. A lot of it's online and there's a three-day workshop in each quarter. If you want to be a palliative care champion and you don't have someone in your clinic already in that role, please email me and talk to me. We'd love to have you on board in one of our cohorts. Um, and if you're just interested, there are people in Providence who've done the palliative care graduate certificate program and they've joined our a local community of practice as well. 
Next slide. And here's some online resources. The Ariadne Labs came up with a serious illness guide that's in our green goals of care tile. The Center for CAPSI or the Center for Advancement of Palliative Care has lots of free CME, lots of tools for doing this work. If you're interested in the communication skills, Vital Talk has online, tra online trainings, in-person trainings, and some online tools you can use. And there are patient and family facing materials that prepare for your care out of the University of California, San Francisco. Next slide. And if you're going into one of those difficult conversations, you have your cell phone in your hand, you can download that free app from Vital Talks, which will give you some on the spot talking points that will help guide you through the conversation. So we have a few questions. Next slide. Um, I'm going to take a look and, and see the first one. Uh, I'm going to throw open to everybody and then I have a thought at the end. I find these communication tools work well for my white patients, but I have a hard time translating them for devout Catholic Latinx patients, Muslims from the Middle East and East, East Asians. I am frequently met with blank stares. Do you have some tips? Sunita, Susie, David. I mean, I guess I would say that I think sometimes, you know, asking the questions like, what's important to you? What does a good day look like? Isn't necessarily going to get me into a great conversation, but it's those little tidbits and things or noticing things about, you know, I notice that your family is really important to you, or I notice, you know, and just trying to get little bits of information that way um, is really important in terms of gathering their story and gathering what what's important to sort of help figure out what might be most important as they continue to get more ill. Thanks. As far as the East Asian, I can understand because I have a lot of East Asian patients and it culturally they they involve their children, especially the elder children are very important to them. They will not make decisions without having the family there. So I think we need to keep that cultural perspective in mind when we have these conversations with these patients because they will not be willing to talk to us without having the children present. And I'd add to all of this, I think one of the things we learned in our training is that um, cultivating an attitude of curiosity is probably the most important. One of the, the questions they asked in the serious illness guide is, who do you want to share the information with and how much do you yourself want to have the information given? And sometimes that allows them to designate a family member or a friend to receive the serious information and manage it while we don't. Um, I think healthcare obviously has been going through the same transformation as our country recently. And so this is front and center of the UW program faculty and the Vital Talk faculty. It's a it's a, a multicultural interprofessional team and increasingly so, and it seems to work as long as we take the time to listen because communication is a bilateral function and we have to listen before we talk and conceive of those tools as a way to learn from the patients as much as we're trying to communicate the information. And I hope you heard Dr. Deshmukh say over and over again, ask permission. So we ask permission every single step. I love the second question, which is how can nursing best support these efforts? Patients sometimes share more info with their nurse 
in the inpatient team than they do with the provider. It's also true in the outpatient team. Often our staff hear more than we do. Um, anybody want to take this, David? Um, yeah, I would just um, I would encourage uh, if you're if you're getting information that that you feel is important, uh, you've had your palliative care headphones on and you got a piece of information. Again, I would try to collect that again, either in the social history section um, that, that doesn't belong to any one person. So so contribute to that narrative um, or if it's if it's really important, capture it in a goals of care note. Um, we want to be sharing this important information again amongst all team members. I would add that this is an interprofessional team sport. It is not a top down, which is why we want to train the entire clinic from the PRs at the front desk to the MAs and the people in the back office. It's important that everybody feel comfortable and everybody trust each other so we can share this information. It's really important. Thank you for that question. Any others? Oh, more. I didn't see these. Um, thank you. This is Dr. Leach. I'm going to break in just briefly and say a big thank you to our speakers and to our robust audience. I know we are at nine o'clock and so some may need to, to drop off the call. Um, just want to point out one point of clarification that advanced directives can be notarized or witnessed. Now, no need for both, um, but the witness can't be uh, from the healthcare provider. Um, so again, thank you so much to our speakers. Uh, we can stay on for a couple of moments. Uh, thank you, Dr. Parshley, for fielding questions. Dr. Parshley, maybe we want to take just one more question for those who are still on the call. We do have one here. Um, also acknowledging a thank you from our hospital medicine colleagues that often conversations go better um, when there's been some prior introduction of these topics. And then a last uh, question with a couple of comments surrounding, I wonder how your work in these how you work in these conversations during a busy clinic day. Um, what effect does it have on your time management? Do you end up with longer days? I don't think I end up with longer days, but I do end up spending more time with my patients sometimes. If it's done in an iterative fashion so that over the long lifelong trajectory of a patient, we gather it in small bits and pieces. When there's a change in status, yeah, it takes more time, but usually we're prepared for that and we're allowed the time in our appointments. In fact, I think this makes me more efficient at collecting this information and documenting it, which we can't forget the documentation time. And I would say that if my medical director's on this call, um, she's gonna start laughing hearing me talk about not running behind and being efficient. However, um, I would say that I, Sometimes we'll actually schedule patients to come in to talk about these things specifically, just so I have that time, or I might make that one of the big things that we're going to talk about that day. Or sometimes I, I schedule a virtual appointment before or after at the end of the day that I know that I'm going to have to take more time. And I would follow up on that and say virtual visits are a great time to do this because people are more comfortable at home and sometimes you get the family members there that you want to have involved, whereas they may not come into the office. 
Great. Well, many thanks um, for the expertise you all have gained and for sharing these really practical tips and tools. Um, we'll look forward to learning more. Uh, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week. Thank you.